0: What comes to your mind when I say the word paradise? What do you think of when you think of what paradise looks like? For, for some of you, paradise involves a secluded beach somewhere with your feet in the sand and a book in one hand and your favorite beverage in the other hand. For some of you, paradise involves uh, mountains and, and nature and cabins and hiking and stuff like that. For some of you, paradise sounds like traveling all over the world, maybe backpacking through Europe, and then for some of you, paradise sounds like just staying at home and relaxing and putting your feet up. We all have different images when we think of paradise. This past week, my family and I were in Southern California for a week, and some people might think of Southern California as paradise, and I will report back to you that it is very nice there. It's very, very nice there. I, there were some moments where I thought I was in paradise, like when I was eating an in and out burgers and I was having a Chick-fil-A sandwich and $20 all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue. I guess people say the other things are nice there too, like the weather and the scenery and the beaches. No, it's hard to see those things when you're elbows deep in your third plate of Korean short rib, but the Bible gives us the briefest of glimpses at paradise, The first two chapters in the Bible, Genesis one and Genesis two, take place before the fall, before the fall of man. And we're going to begin a four-week series this morning, simply entitled "Before the Fall." And we're going to look at Genesis one and Genesis two, and we're going to identify four things that existed before the fall, and how they still impact our lives today. Now. Genesis, the book of Genesis, whether you know this or not, is one of the most controversial books in all of Scripture. Probably the only other book that is as controversial as Genesis is Revelation. One describes the beginning, one describes the end, both describe worlds that are very difficult for us to understand. Both use metaphorical language at times. Both are in difficult genres. And so Genesis is this, uh, this book, especially these first two chapters, where there's this ongoing debate on how do we interpret Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I want to look at it a little bit this morning, but first I want to say this. Whenever we get into hotly debated scripture passages, I want to suggest four rules of engagement. Four rules of engagement. You know you got to set the rules. You know when boxers come to the middle of the ring for a fight, they give them some rules, right? Protect yourself at all times. Don't grab. Don't bite. Don't do things like this. So here's the rules of engagement for whenever you are leaning into a scripture debate. Here's number one. We must approach all of scripture, but especially Genesis 1 and 2, with deep, deep humility. I mean deep humility. If we go into the Bible, if we go into Genesis 1 and 2 with great arrogance, acting like we know everything about it and that everybody who even slightly disagrees with us is deceived and possibly lost, it says more about us than it does about the Scripture passage. So number one, deep humility. Number two, we need to avoid what I like to call hobby horse Christian faith hobby horse Christian faith is that you find one thing in the Bible and you build your whole Christianity around it. And you know this is you because you talk about that more than you talk about Jesus and the gospel. And I've run into Christians like this who, when it comes to the topic of creation versus evolution, this is their hobby horse. Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be Christians who are passionate about this topic and know how to speak intelligently to it. We need Christians who can do that. But please, you heard this the prophetic word that came forward this morning, Careful what you're placing your faith in. You place your faith in your interpretation of Genesis 1 more than you place your faith in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. You might have a faith that actually is not Christianity at all. So be very, very careful about that. The third thing I would say is that when we engage in debate like this is avoid using straw man arguments of the opposing view. The straw man argument basically is this I will use the weakest, lamest, stupidest version of the other people's arguments against them. It doesn't work. You have to, here's the number one rule of entering into any debate you need to know the other person's view as well as they know it. You need to be able to articulate it. Otherwise, you have no actual right to address their belief system. And then the last thing I would say, and this is a little bit of a, a re, uh, restating of the first one, but when it comes to things like interpreting Genesis 1, which has become a dividing point within the Christian faith, you need to be remarkably gracious towards those who disagree with you. You should be as gracious towards them as Christ has been gracious to you. How gracious has Christ been to you? So let's just look at the first two verses of Genesis 1. These are very, this is a very familiar passage I'm reading to you from the ESV. It starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. So I just want to touch on maybe about 10 minutes, and, and this will be too short for some of you and too long for others of you, uh, but I just want to touch on the specifics of the controversy here in Genesis 1 and 2. And I want to put this as a preface. This is not an area of expertise for me. It just isn't. I've not done extensive study on this. I've taken classes. I've read books. But this is, I'm not an expert on this. Some of you are possibly more well-versed on this conversation than I am. So we're just going to do a flyover. And what I want to do is show you that there are four basic interpretations of Genesis chapter 1. Four different interpretations. Now, there's actually a lot more, but four sort of big categories of interpretations. And the first one is what we would call young earth creationism. So young earth creationism reads Genesis 1 and reads it very literally. It says that when it says morning and night and when it says day, that's what it means. 24-hour days. God created the heavens and the earth literally in 7 weeks or I'm sorry, in 7 days in 1 week. A young earth creationist would say the earth is about 6,000 to 7,000 years old and no older. And the young earth creationist would also say any science that says otherwise is being interpreted wrongly or has a bias Against God. Let me say this up front. I don't believe that science has a bias against God or that scientists inherently have a bias against God. However, I do believe that every human being has a bias against God because we don't, if there's a God, then we're accountable to somebody. So while I don't think science is the enemy, I do think that as human beings, we may have biases against the existence of God. So here's some reasons why people believe young earth creationism. Once again, this is very quick. If you feel like in any way I misrepresent your view this morning, I will apologize in advance. I'm not an expert. Go Google this later and you can read for hours about this stuff. We don't have the time for it. Young earth creationists would say, this is the clearest, simplest reading of the text. This is what the text says. This is what we believe. Young earth creationists would point out that there are later references in the Bible, specifically Exodus 20:11, that say that God created the earth in six days. Young earth creationists would point out that Genesis is mostly historical prose, which is another word for narrative, means it should be interpreted literally. Young earth creationists would say there are other explanations for the apparent age of the earth and fossil records. Namely, they would point to Noah and the flood. Young earth creationists would say God is omnipotent. He didn't need millions of years to create the earth. He only needed six days to create the earth. So if you don't believe in young earth creationism, then you're saying God isn't as powerful as we believe he is. And then, of course, there are Christian scientists and young earth creationists who interpret the fossil records and different things differently. Okay? So that's young earth creationism. And I'm being briefer with that one than I'm going to be with the next one because I actually think we understand young earth creationism the best in, in our circles. The second way to look at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2 is often called old earth creationism. And old earth creationism says God created the heavens and the earth, but the seven days were not literal 24-hour days. They are undefined periods of time. And there are variations underneath this belief system. There's the day-age theory, which says that instead of 24-hour days, they're just ages of time. And then there's also this theory called the gap theory, where people believe that between the two verses I just read, there was a gap Gap of millions and millions of years. So I'm not going to go into why they believe that. I'm just letting you know that those beliefs exist. Here's why old earth creationists believe what they believe. The Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 1 for day is the word yam. Yom Kippur. You've heard it before in other contexts. Yom actually has five different meanings. Now that's tricky for us as interpreters. Yom can mean a 24-hour day, but it can also mean an undetermined amount of time. It can actually, in some places, it means a year. In fact, in this exact passage in Genesis 2-4, the word yam is used again to describe the entire creation week. So, interpreters say, you need to understand the context of the writer to understand what's being said here. Old earth creationists would say that Genesis 1, that the genre, the genre, the writing style, is that it's a poem. It's really a poem of sorts. And that Genesis 2 is a narrative. Now, This actually is one of the most important questions to ask when we interpret the Bible. What genre is this text written in? It makes a huge difference. So people say, well, you should just interpret the Bible literally. What it says is true. Yes, but first, you have to interpret the Bible literarily, which means you need to ask what piece of literature, what type of literature is this? Then you can interpret it literally. So if I was to say, uh, I'm so angry about my children, I could Strangle them. Now, I've never said that, but if I were to say that, most likely you know me and you wouldn't immediately call the police and say, I know a guy who's going to attempt murder on his children today. You would know that I'm using hyperbole, that I am exaggerating. And so it's understanding sort of the way things are being said and the intent of the author. There's other examples in the Bible. Judges 4, remember we just did a series on Judges? Judges 4 gives us the narrative of Deborah and Barak. But Judges 5 is a poem about Deborah and Barak. It's a song. So there's a couple other examples in the Old Testament where a story is told historically, but there's also a poem or a song immediately before it or after it. And Old Earth creationists would say that's what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is primarily a song or a poem, and Genesis 2 is primarily a narrative. Now, why do they believe that? They believe that because if you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as both being historical narratives, then there are contradictions that are very hard to explain. The order of creation in Genesis 1 and the order of creation in Genesis 2 are not the same. Let me give you one example. Genesis 1 shows us that on day 3 there's vegetation, that there's plants. But this is before there's any atmosphere because it's not till day 4 that the sun and the moon and the stars are made. So therefore, according to the Genesis 1 account, there was vegetation before rain was possible. Now, of course, that's not a problem for our God. That certainly could have been the case. However, in Genesis 2, 5, it says, when God made the earth and heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up because, why? The Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground. So here, you actually have God waiting on rain and waiting on the creation of human before he's going to bring about the creation of all of the plants, Although God did not have to follow what we would call a natural order in creation, Genesis 2.5 teaches that he did. And so old earth creationists would say, there's actually two different creation accounts. Genesis 1 is more of a song, a poem. Genesis 2 is more of a narrative. Okay, I'm just explaining what, what they believe. Don't, I'm not saying what I believe at this point, nor probably will I. <laughs> old earth creationists also will say this to the argument that God is able. They'll say, yes, God is able. He he literally could have created everything in one second. He didn't need seven days. But God's power is consistently restrained by his choosing. So it's not an issue of God's ability. This is an issue of God's choice, right? When I wrestle with my daughters, I have the power to physically harm them. But what am I doing? I am choosing to restrain my power so that, we can have fun together, and so old Earth creationists would say, "This is not a this is not a debate about God's ability." Yes, God could have created the Earth in seven twenty-four hour days; he absolutely could have. What we're talking about is, did he decide to? Did he choose to? Right. So that's that's another thing. And then, of course, old Earth creationists would point to the scientific indicators that we live in an old Earth, um, which do with that what you want. I already talked a little bit about science. Be careful not, as Christians, to generalize science or scientists as anti-Jesus. Anti Christian people. There's lots of Christian scientists. We have Christian scientists that attend our church, that are members in our church. Be careful not to make science out to be the bad guy. Science is ultimately the study of God's creation. It's a wonderful thing that we should all be doing as an act of worship. So, careful how we talk about science in such a way that we don't draw an unnecessary line between science and faith. Now, the third view on Genesis 1, and I'm going to move quickly now, is called theistic evolution. This one you may be relatively unfamiliar with and probably very uncomfortable with. But theistic evolution basically believes that God started life but used the biological process of evolution in his process of creating. There's a huge spectrum of this from people over here who believe basically in deism, which is that God got things started. just He put together the building blocks of life and he just let it go. And then there's people over here who say, no, God miraculously intervened in every step of the biological process and every adaptive change God was involved in. Okay? So that, I have some concerns with that, but I just want you to know that there are people of faith who believe that. There is a difference between evolution as a biological process and evolution as a worldview. And we need to understand the difference. So there's theistic evolution, but then there's atheistic evolution. And those people, this is the fourth one, will look at Genesis 1 and say, it's a total myth. And for them, evolution is not just about science, it's their entire worldview. It's their explanation for the way things are. It's it's naturalism, that there's no God, that there's never been a God, that there's no divine activity, and that everything just naturally evolved from nothing. That is the only one of the four that I think there are not, Christians do not hold to. There are not Christians who hold to what would be called atheistic evolution. There are Christians who hold to young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and even theistic evolution. Now, if you're interested in any of that, have fun on Google because it's all there. (laughs) I know that right there was probably too much information for some, but I just wanted to whet the appetite. Why was Genesis 1 written? And we're going to get right into Genesis 1 here. Why was it written? This is one of the most important questions we have to ask when we interpret scripture. Why was this written? And some people say, well, Genesis 1 was written to dispute evolution, to combat naturalism and secularism and humanism and the worldview of evolution. The problem is, is that that's not actually very true. Uh, Genesis 1 was, was written many, many, many years ago, of course. There is a lot of debate about when it was written. Some people believe it was written you know, uh, 4,000, 3,000 years before Jesus was born. Some people believe it was written when the uh, people of Israel were in Babylonian captivity. Whatever you believe on that, here's what you need to know naturalism, or the belief that everything has a natural explanation and that there's no supernatural explanation for things, it didn't exist back then. Everybody had a super, supernatural explanation for the world. There wasn't like people who believed in God and people who didn't believe in God back then. It was people who believed in Jehovah and people who believed in other types of gods. So the idea that Genesis 1 was written to combat naturalism just doesn't have any legitimacy to it. So why was Genesis 1 written? It was written because I believe it wanted to remind us that our story, your story and my story, it starts with God, okay? In the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, God. So number one, it was written because we didn't want any question in our mind. Whatever you believe about how God created the earth, God is the creator of all things, All life comes from God. There's nothing here that God didn't initiate in his work and in his choosings. I believe Genesis 1 was also written because we're going to learn this morning some very important things about the nature of God. Who is God? How does he work? We go all the way back to the beginning, and we can see some really powerful things about God in Genesis 1. Also, Genesis 1 was written to give us an account of our origin. Humanity's role in the creation story is different than everybody else's role, and that's really, really significant for us today. And then the last thing is that I believe that Genesis 1 was written to be a, listen to this, a counter-creation account to all the other creation myths that were going around back then. You know, Christianity is not the only faith that has an explanation for how the world started. Everyone does. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, where all this was being read and written for the first time, there were a lot of popular creation myths. One of the most popular ones was a Babylonian creation myth called Enuma Elisha. And I want to read to you a summary of it because I want you to hear the way other people thought the world started. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to read to you a summary of their explanation. And then I want to read to you Genesis one. And when you hear them back to back, I think you're going to hear Genesis one differently than you've ever heard it before. All right. So here's the, here's the summary of what's called Enuma Elish. And I don't honestly know if I'm pronouncing that properly or not, but, um, if anyone else wants to give it a go, they can. Here's, here's a summary. In the beginning, there was water swirling in chaos. Does that sound familiar? The deep, the spirit hovering over the deep, out of this swirl, the waters divided into two types of water, sweet, fresh water, known as the god Apsu, and salty, bitter water, the goddess Tiamat. Once they separated, they reunited and they gave birth to younger gods. Okay, so you got sweet, fresh water, salty, bitter water, two gods come together. Now, these young gods, however, were extremely loud. Big surprise, right? Teenage gods, extremely loud, troubling the sleep of Apsu at night. And all the parents said, I know what that's like. And distracting him from his work by day. Upon the advice of his vizier, Mumu, it's great names, Apsu decides to kill the younger gods. Tiamat hears of the plan and warns the eldest son, Enki, and he, in turn, puts Apsu to sleep and kills him. From Apsu's remains, Enki creates his home. Now Tiamat, who was once a supporter of the younger gods, she's now enraged that they have killed her mate. So she consults with the god Quingu, who advises her to make war on the younger gods. With Quingu as her champion, Tiamat summons the forces of chaos and creates 11 horrible monsters to destroy her children. So this is mom and dad, by This is children killing their dad and then mom killing the children, in case you're not tracking. Enki and the younger gods, the children, now fight against their mom futilely until from among them emerges the champion named Marduk, who swears he will defeat his mom, Tiamat. Marduk first defeats Quingu, the other god who's been helping his mom, and then kills Tiamat by shooting her with an arrow, which splits her into two. From her eyes flow the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Out of Tiamat's corpse, Marduk creates the heavens and the earth, He appoints gods to various duties and binds Tiamat's 11 monsters to his feet as trophies before setting their images in his new home. Now, after the gods have finished praising him for his great victory and the art of his creation, Marduk consults with the god of wisdom, Ea, and decides to create human beings from the remains of whichever of the gods instigated Tiamat to war. Quingu is charged as guilty and killed, and from his blood, Ea creates Lulu, the first man, to be a helper to the gods in their eternal task of maintaining order and keeping chaos at bay. Following this, Marduk arranged the organization of the netherworld and distributed the gods to their appointed stations, and then the poem ends with a long praise of Marduk for his accomplishments. Anuma Elish. This is... Not a fantasy I mean, it's a fantasy to us, but to them it wasn't a fantasy. This is what they believed was the explanation for the existence of the heavens and the earth and humanity, okay? So with that story rattling around in your head, let me read to you Genesis 1. And normally when I read two things, I don't normally read very long passages of Scripture, but I'm going to do that this morning. And number two, it's usually on the screen, but I'm not going to do that this morning because I would rather you just listen to Genesis 1. And if you even want, now I'll know if you're sleeping, but if you even want, close your eyes. And as I'm reading Genesis 1, imagine what this must have been like. But keep in mind what we just heard about how the Babylonians explained the origin of things. Let's read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Quite different than Enuma Elish. Quite different. What do we learn from the creation account about the nature of our God, about the nature of this God? And don't get so locked into Genesis 1, all the debate, all the controversy, all the interpretation. Don't get so locked in that you miss, this is the most important thing that we can learn in Genesis 1. Who is our God? And I have four thoughts for you, and I will be quick. I know often four thoughts for me takes 30 minutes. It will not this morning. Four thoughts for you, and if you have a handout, you can write them in. The first one is this. In Genesis 1, the first thing we learn about our God is that he is a God in control. He is a God in control. We flew back yesterday from Anaheim, arrived in Buffalo about 6.30 and drove and got back into our house around 9.30 last night. And, you know, when, when we get on the plane, we, I carry little Madeline onto the plane and she's three years old now. So even though she's so little, we have to pay for her and she's got her own little seat. It's So funny looking because she doesn't even fill up a quarter of the seat. She's just sitting there. And, uh, you know, if you were to look at her and me, you would think as we walk onto that plane, who has the most power? Well, I'm I'm literally carrying her. I have the most power. Not only is she little, she has a physical disability. I mean, I'm physically more able and stronger than her. I I have more intelligence than her. I have more experience than her. I have more power than her. But when we're 30,000 feet in the air and she starts to scream and wants something, (laughs) guess who has more power? How quickly the power changes hands. Did you notice that in the Babylonian creation myth, power kept changing hands, right? Control from this God, to, from the father to the mother to the children, back to the mother to the, and it kept changing hands and changing hands. In Genesis 1, there's one God, and he is in control the entire time. The power never changes hands. God is in complete control. He is doing what he wants to do. He is doing what he is choosing to do. He's not under duress. We don't see a God who is being forced into activity or who is being riled up into activity. We're seeing a God who is from beginning to end, did he ever sound to you, as I read that, out of control? He was always in control. Here's what I love about God in Genesis 1. He's never reacting He's always proactive. He is the initiator. He's the instigator of all action and all creation. He's never reacting to what's happening around him because he is completely in control. And God is so in control that he doesn't have to work. He doesn't have to sweat. He doesn't have to strive. According to Genesis 1, he simply speaks. That's how in control our God is. That's the sort of power that he has. He simply speaks, and what didn't exist, now exists. Ex nihilo is the uh, theological term that out of nothing, God creates something. All of us create things, right? We like to create things, whether you're a drawer, painter, writer, chef, um, architect, whatever you like to do. Work, but we, we take something and we make something else. Not God. He took nothing and creates the universe. And we see a God in control. Not wondering, where's the power? Have I lost the power? Am I going to lose the power? And for us this morning, you know what it means? God is still in control of his creation. God is still at work in his creation. God is not panicking over your life. He's not nervous over your situation. He's not wondering who has the control. He's not wondering who orders your steps. He knows that he is the one who orders your steps. The same God that spoke creation into existence, according to Hebrews, still sustains creation through the very power of his word. Jesus Christ does that for us. And so when we look at Genesis 1, we see a God in control. And when we look at our own lives, we need to remind ourselves, God, you're in control. You're in charge. The second thing that we see from this creation account is that God is not only in control, we see a God in unity. God in unity. In the Babylonian account, the gods are doing what? They're fighting. They're violent. They're killing each other. But in Genesis chapter one, the Trinity is doing what? Working together. Perfect harmony. Working in sync. I know the Trinity is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. One of my arguments, this is going to maybe not make sense to you, but it helps me a little bit. One of my arguments for the existence of the Trinity is simply this. Who would have made that up? I mean, who makes that up? Who comes up with that and says, this will work? People will believe this. Every other religion has gods over every different thing. God of the sun, God of the moon, God of the seas, God of the, the netherworlds, right? But Christianity says oh, we have something that's so far off the radar that for the rest of existence, you're not going to be able to understand it. And all the metaphors we try to use actually are very, very ineffective. They're actually in a lot of ways uh, heresies, but we use them to try and help us a little bit. So here you see the word Trinity, by the way, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in two weeks. The word Trinity comes from a Hebrew word that is actually describes a specific ancient dance. And this dance was done in such a way where it was one of those dances where you are exchanging partners. So if any of you like do that country music dancing thing where you're, you're, you're swinging one person and then, you, and then you go and you grab someone else's arms and after a while you don't, square dancing, that's what it's called. Yeah, obviously I'm not a country dancer or a square dancer. Square dancing. It was something like that, but the reason why this word ended up meaning Trinity was because it was a sort of dance that happened so fast, after a while, you couldn't tell who was who. And that's where the word Trinity comes from, that there is this beautiful syncretism and harmony. They are distinct but one, three persons, one God, and they're working together. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and where's the Spirit? Not far away. The Spirit's hovering over the face of the earth. Well, you might go, oh yeah, but where's Jesus? Jesus. Well, John chapter one tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and through the word all things were created. Nothing has been created except for without Jesus' involvement. We know that the word is describing Jesus because 14 verses later it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. But also we know that the Trinity is working together because it says in verse 26 that God said, did you notice this? Let us make man in our image. God didn't say like Marduk, kills another god and out of the blood of that god makes humans god says let us work together us not me make god in my image or make man in my image let us so there's this there's this beautiful thing that we learn about god right from the beginning in genesis chapter one that he's a god of unity he's a god who knows how to work together and you know that's why the church should resemble god in that way that we should be unified, that we should be able to work together. It's amazing what can get accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit for it. But so many times we get in the way of what God might want it to do in a community or in a church because we wanna make sure that when we do something that our name is on it, that our stamp is on it, and that people know it was our work. And God here at the very beginning, who made man in his image? Was it God the Father? Was it God the Son? Was it God? No one cares who gets the credit. Let us make man in our image. God is still working together for the good of his creation. The Father is reigning and ruling, sovereign and holy. Jesus is seated at the right-hand side of the Father this morning. He's making intercession for you. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to draw us to Jesus. And then when we place our faith in Jesus, to dwell within us as our helper and our counselor and our guide, the, 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 the Godhead is still working together on your behalf. Just like the Godhead worked together in creation, the Godhead works together for recreation, for you and I to be made new and for this world to be made new. So we see a God in control. We see a God in unity. And then the third point this morning is this. And this is the main point. We see a God of order. That's, to me, the most striking difference between the Babylonian account and the Genesis 1 account is order. Did you get the sense of order? Things weren't haphazard. Things weren't Chaotic. Did you notice the rhythm to Genesis 1? Which is one of the reasons why some people believe it was more of a poem than it was a historical narrative. There is a repeated rhythm to it. And then morning and night, the first day. Morning and night, the second day. There's sort of this intentionality and thoughtfulness found in Genesis 1 that stands in stark contrast to the randomness, violence, and chaos that we read in other creation myths. There's this order where days 1, 2, and 3 Um, align or correspond with days four, five, and six. Did you notice that? On day one, God speaks light into existence, but it's on day four that the light finds shape in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, God separates the heavens and the earth, but it's on day five that God fills the heavens and the earth with the creatures of the air and the creatures of the sea. And it's on day three that God separates everything and creates dry land and vegetation. But it's on day six that he fills the land with the beasts of the earth and the things that creep on the ground, sorry, Aaron, even spiders, things that creep on the ground and humankind. There is this rhythm, there is this rhythm Order. In fact, some of the strongest arguments for the existence of God today are about the order of the universe. It's called the teleological argument that look at how ordered our universe is. Look at how well our universe works. This this this, this screams that there's a designer. This screams that there is a a mind behind all this. This simply could not have happened. Now, this is why other people who are evolutionists have created this theory of the multiverse, which means there's an infinite number of universes out, which means one of them got lucky, and congratulations, you're in it right now. But another way of looking at it is there was a creator. There was an intelligent designer who said, I'm going to create a world that is in order. Another one of the strongest arguments currently for the existence of God I don't completely understand this one, is that the universe, they're discovering more and more, scientists and mathematicians are discovering more and more that the universe can be ascribed, written out, understood in mathematical terms. Have you heard this? And so what they're saying is, and this is actually, if you talk to a well-learned atheist, they'll say, this is, this is a problem for us. Like, this is a difficult one to explain away. And what they're saying is simply this, that math was not something we invented it was something we discovered. And if math is ascribed in the universe and if it's something we discovered, then the implication is there's a mind behind all of it. So the, there are there is order in the universe. There's order in nature. There's order in creation. And before the fall, this is what I want us to hear this morning, before the fall there was order. Now listen, look around the world today. Where is the order? It's getting a little chaotic, isn't it? Isn't there a lot of chaos both in nature And in humanity and in our country and around the world because of the fall. But before the fall, there was tremendous order. God is a God of order, and someday everything is going to be back in order. You know, the implications are powerful, actually. The implications are this: God does not work in your life haphazardly. He's not, He's not sort of going, you know, He's not figuring it out as He goes. He doesn't work in your life chaotically. If you think that God is a God of chaos, and doesn't like order and structure, then you've missed the Old Testament where all those detailed civic and ceremonial and moral and religious laws. I mean, I mean probably you did miss it because it's boring to read through, but as you read through it, you realize God is a God of detail. Or when you get to the Old Testament, there's these chapters on how to build the temple, like very, very detailed. He's a God of order. God is strategic. God is a planner. Sometimes in our stream of evangelicalism, sometimes in the Pentecostal world, we buy into this lie that spontaneous is more spiritual. Now, can spontaneous be spiritual? Of course it can. But is it always more spiritual? No, it isn't always more spiritual. God, the Holy Spirit, can prepare you and lead you months in advance just as well as he can lead you in the moment. Now, we should have such a dependency upon the Holy Spirit that we're always listening and we're always ready to respond. But we also shouldn't buy into the lie that planning is anti-spiritual. We have a meeting before every service in the office back there where we talk through, here's what we're doing this morning. The worship leader, the projection, the projection worker, the sound worker, the speak, the preacher, every, we, we sit and we talk through. But we also know that if God the Holy Spirit wants to do something else, we will listen and respond. But it doesn't release us from our responsibility to have things in order to be planned out. it's the same thing with your life. Some Christians are, are sort of so chaotic in their spirituality that there's no order to their life. And I'm telling you, if you look at Genesis 1, that's not the nature of your God. God wants to order your steps. He wants to bring order into your life. And Paul jumps right on this language in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says, when we gather together, we should do things decently and in order. So don't believe that spontaneous and unplanned means more spiritual it doesn't always mean that. You know, we're supposed to come with a song, come with a psalm, come with a spiritual song. Paul didn't say, hey, show up and, and get, show up and just hope that one kind of releases it. Come ready to contribute, come ready to give. And so this, this idea of that God is a God of order and he wants our lives to be in order and he wants our homes to be in order. He wants our finances to be in order. He wants our hearts to be in order and he wants to order our every step. And my last point this morning and we'll close is this. God is a God in control, he's a God in unity, he's a God of order, but also he's a God in humanity. Now this is what I mean. Be careful, I'm not saying humans are little gods. But, I, but in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This is what I'm saying. God has placed his image in humanity. Humanity is special, Humanity is the climax of the creation story. You know, you saw you saw that in the other accounts, uh, the other account that I read. Humanity was kind of an afterthought. They were like, ah, we got all these dead god bodies around. Like, what should we do? Oh yeah, yeah, let's make humans out of them to be our slaves and to do our and to do our will. But in Genesis one, everything builds towards humanity, the creation of humanity, and then everything changes. By the way, you probably would have known this, but. Genesis six, or the the sixth day in Genesis chapter one is the only one that in the the Hebrew actually has a definite article before it. This is what I mean. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. If you read it in the Greek, it actually says it was morning and night a first day, a second day, a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day. And then when it gets to the sixth day, it changes. It says morning and night, the sixth day. I don't 100% know why. But one of the beliefs is it's to emphasize the significance of the creation of humanity. That we've been created in God's very image. If you've been created in God's image, this is what it means. It means that you have a, you have a mind like God has a mind. You have emotions like God has emotions. You have a will like God has a will. It means that you've been created for relationship. Because if God's always existed in relationship with himself and we've been created in his image, then we've been created for a relationship. We're gonna talk more about that in two weeks. It also means that we have creative abilities. Those of you that are tremendously creative, that's, that's God's image at work in you creating, writing songs, writing books, making tasty meals and sharing them with me, whatever it is that, whatever it is that God puts on your heart this morning. Um, these are creative abilities that God has given us. And here's, here's the other thing that it means to be created in God's image, and this is so timely because of what's happening in our country right now. If you are being created in God's image means this, that you have inherent dignity and worth apart from anything else about yourself, apart from the color of your skin, apart from where you live, apart from how educated you are, apart from what gender you are, apart from what gender you claim you are, apart from any of that thing, Genesis 1 settles the issue. You have inherent dignity because God has invested his very image into you. And anybody who says that somebody is, has a, 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 is better than other people, whether it's based on race, anyone who says that there's a, a supremacy based on race or based on anything else, it is an absolute affront to the character of God and to the word of God and it is a wicked evil sin and God calls the church to rise up and Christians to rise up and to speak to that and if Christians do not have a voice on things like racism then I think God has to be wondering why did I even give them a voice to begin with and so it's important that we speak with uh, both grace and truth there's a way to do it by the way as you do it, be careful that you don't use their beliefs to then feel superior to them because then you're doing the same thing that they're doing to others. You know what I'm talking about, right? What's happening in Virginia? So God has put his image into every human being. And so they have value and they have worth that cannot be deterred by anything as simple as their, their ethnicity and their race. So we've been creating God's imagery and in, in his image we see a God in humanity. And the last verse I want to read to you, actually, I want to go to the New Testament. In Hebrews 1, God in humanity, his image in us, but, but thousands of years later, God actually comes in humanity, doesn't he? Jesus comes in humanity to be a human, to live as one of us. And look at how the author of Hebrews says it in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. He says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers By the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Look at through whom what? He created the world. Now verse three, remember we're image bearers. But Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the perfect image of God the Father. And he upholds the universe. How? Same way he created it. By the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here's what I want to close with, this simple thought, that Jesus came to earth to be the exact representation of the Father. See, before the fall, we had the image of God on us. We had the image of God that was unaffected that was not perverted, that was not broken, that was not torn apart. But since the fall, all of us have the image of God, but it's been effaced in some way. You know, we are the image of God, we carry the image of God, but we're not God. We, we have things about us, we have insecurities, we have inabilities, but Jesus comes to show us this is what it looks like to be fully human, This is what it looks like to carry the image of God, to show us who we were created to be. But not only that, Jesus came to be the perfect image bearer in our place because we couldn't be perfect image bearers anymore. Genesis 3, unfortunately, does happen. And when Genesis 3 happens and the fall happens and sin enters the world, it affects us and we cannot bear the image of God perfectly anymore. But Jesus came to do it in our place. And now Jesus is recreating you and me into the image of God. He's restoring us to who we were created to be. And yes, we will not be there on this side of eternity, but someday we someday we will. Is your life spiraling out of control? Well, God is a God of control. He's in charge, and he's working for your good and for his glory. Is there division and disunity in your life? You serve a God of unity. Look at what Jesus did to bring you into unity with the Father. Is your life chaotic? Invite God, ask God to bring order into your life and he will guard your mind, he will order your steps and he will give you peace. Have you lost your sense of self or your sense of worth and value? Remind yourself this morning, or let the Holy Spirit remind you this morning, God made you in his image. See, he used his breath to speak everything else into existence, but with you, he gave you his breath. That's what it says. In Genesis 2, he formed man, he got his hands dirty, First time he uses his hands in creation. He forms man from the dirt, and then what? He breathes the same breath that was that spoke all of the universe into existence. He breathed it into you. He gave it to you. His image, his breath, his life, his hope. And then when Genesis 3 happened, and we lost it all, he immediately said, I have a plan to give it back. I have a plan to give it all back. And that's the story of the Bible to bring us to Jesus. He's a God in control. He's a God in unity. He's a God of order. He's God in humanity. This is what we learn about our God in Genesis chapter one. Let's pray together this morning.